This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility and listeners like you. From WMPG, I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist here in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today, we continue our series on hidden emotions. We're airing stories and conversations about guilt, loneliness, humiliation, and jealousy. Our guest last week, Harant Kachadurian, writes that caring for our parents near the end of their lives is the subject most likely to trigger guilt, perhaps because we feel we owe our parents the most. So this is the focus of today's show. We'll have two stories and some conversation about how guilt shows up even when we really are doing our best. As you'll see, in both cases, the relationships were already a little complicated. But before we start, I also want to tell you about how we got these stories. I put out a call on Facebook to invite people to tell stories about guilt and was almost instantly deluged with stories that people wanted to tell. So both of these stories today are from people I knew a long time ago. The first is a childhood friend from high school, someone I haven't spoken to in over 30 years. And as you'll hear, it's partly a story about what can happen when you don't tell your story to anyone. You don't get the benefit of a compassionate perspective that helps you see it differently. In a way, Ted's story is all about the very reason why Safe Space Radio exists. When we hide things, we suffer more. Rarely are the people outside our heads as cruel to us as the voices inside our heads. So this is a story about how guilt can make us suffer far in excess of the reality of the crime. Here's my old friend, Ted. Hi, I'm Ted from Ontario. Ted Jr., the story about my dad... um, I guess it would start, uh, I was working in a flower shop in my hometown. Uh, I'd moved back home. I'd been living with my parents for a year and a half in my mid-twenties. My father always had a big resentment against me um, because I had dropped out of university, but then discovered that I had had a dyslexia and so it was very hard for me to go to university. When he found that out, he, he was kind of... His attitude changed drastically towards me and it was very visible. You know, he was very outgoing, talking to me. How's it going? Always willing to converse suddenly. Once that kind of stigma had been removed from our relationship where it wasn't my fault, I applied myself. It's just political science and law, too much reading. (laughs) And when you're dyslexic and you don't know it, reading is the last thing you want to ever do. So I had been living at home and... um, I hadn't lived there since I was a teenager, so I'd moved out very young. So it was new living back with my parents, but we were enjoying it. And I, I had a job working at a flower shop with great people, and I loved my job. Um, and uh, one morning I got a phone call. I, it was maybe about uh, 10 in the morning. And they said, you know, your father's been taken to the hospital. Um, quickly, um, you're supposed to go down there. And uh, it was the winter time, and I was wearing high snow boots, dirty jeans, um, just work clothing. And the thought of my my arrogance was, I don't want to be seen down in a hospital with a lot of pretty nurses looking like a bum. And that's what I thought at the time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to whip home, have a shower, and then I'll drive straight down to the hospital. And that's what I did. Um, And um, 
you know, I can I can always justify it in saying that my dad was always particular that you should look nice. You you know, as a little kid, I was never allowed to wear jeans to school, and I looked like a nerd. I had brown cords my whole life, so. You know, my father's very particular on how you looked in public, uh, especially if I was going down to be seen by him. Um, and so I, I changed. I went home and changed. When I arrived at the hospital, I arrived to the elevator doors opening and seeing my father surrounded by doctors being pushed into an elevator with my dad's arms and leg frailing in the air and it he looked terrified it was the first time that my dad looked terrified and uh the doors closed and i looked and my brothers who and sisters who lived in the city at the time as well had all been sitting around with him for the last half hour talking with him and that was that half hour. I, did, I, I, went, I, I, went, I, I went home to shower. Um, we all waited f- for the surgery to be over. He was rushed into, and about 12 hours later, he came out, and we were told that we could go home. And we went home at midnight and were told that, you know, if he makes it through the night, he should be okay, hopefully. And, um, and so we all went home kind of lighthearted, and I called a friend and said, hey, you know, it's looking good, da-da-da, a little weight. Let's have a couple drinks, da-da-da. Um, and um, at 3 a.m., we got a phone call, and my mom had stayed down there, of course, but the kids got a phone call and said, you have to come down and say goodbye. And uh, my dad obviously never recovered from the surgery and was on life support, and so we pulled the plug, or, you know, my mother uh, removed the support system uh, with the family there. And, you know, it was just could have said goodbye to my dad had I not gone home to take a shower. And uh, that weighs on me. Uh, and that has weighed on me and has affected me throughout my life ever since that happened. Uh, and there's nothing like one shower wrecking your whole life. It's something though that if you if you don't discuss it, just eats away, eats away, eats away at you. And if you know, you got to tell someone. Yeah, I knew always, always knew I had to tell someone. It was just who do I want to tell, and what group of people am I willing to tell? I certainly don't want anybody in the world who knows me to know that I miss saying goodbye to my dad because I'm that arrogant. I wanted to take a shower to look good. Ted, when you did first tell it, did you, what kind of response did you get? Oh, I'll be honest. I told it in a group session um, in a clinic I was at, and the, let's say the therapists weren't qualified to handle that type of emotional outburst, a, a release from the people in the group. 
Um, I was shaking, vibrating, and things like that. And the counselors, I don't think, were fully qualified. They weren't psychologists, or, um, but they knew they had struck something. I knew they had struck something. You know, when I got it out, it was like, okay, I feel better now. I walked out. And, and to me, it was like, someone's willing to listen. I don't mind. Uh, eventually, I came to an age where it was like, look, I can't. I've had enough of letting things eat me alive. It's the way it is. I have to move on. And so from 40 on, I just stopped functioning properly. And what was the problem of this? Um, you know, the, it, it's not because of, uh, of an addiction or anything like that. It's because something's wrong with my brain. And what is it? And there's got to be something wrong. Something's happened to me that and I've got to discover what it was. And that was certainly one of the one of the things. So it made it made made it hard holding a job because you have guilt and you have constant depression because of that guilt. And depression can make you do a whole bunch of terrible things because you're depressed. Anything's better than being depressed to mask it and cover it up. Um, but eventually all that masking and covering it up, you realize that's going to take its toll in other ways a lot worse than just talking about it. Hmm. So... Uh, Anonymous shows I will talk. <laughs> you know, I um, it's so hard because it feels like there's so many different things tied up in it, right? There's like oh, the man, guilt, yeah. and then there's so much grief, and then just remorse, you know, for this missed opportunity, and sadness because your dad was someone you felt like you'd sort of disappointed so many times in your life, and then you were just getting that finally that positive feedback from him and then it was like oh god like you disappointed him again like oh i can just feel yeah and that's one of the things that i did talk about pretty quickly with everybody who knew me that you know my dad did enjoy me living at home just before he died and actually said that to other people would never say it to his kids you know he would never admit that to his kids but it was the other people around him that would always fill me in on things, you know. Oh, your father was so worried about you when you were in the hospital. Really? I I didn't see him, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, boy, your father, you know, was, you know, real happy uh, you've been living at home. And it was like, really? Okay, that's great. I mean, he, he would come home at 7 o'clock from work and I'd spend 20 minutes talking and that would be, but that's 20 minutes more than I'd ever would growing up. So, you know. When you agreed to do this with me, mm -hmm. what what made you decide to do this? What were you hoping for? Uh, a forum to discuss it. Uh, a forum to get it uh, out. I was nervous as heck. Uh, I've been walking around pacing for since. Uh, you know, my girlfriend will say, you know, she knew how nervous I was just even going to discuss it and wanted to know what I was going to discuss and doesn't know. No one knows what, only knows that I was being um, called by an old school friend who happens to have a radio show. Are you going to tell your girlfriend? No, 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 I wouldn't tell the, anyone. I wouldn't tell my brother. I told him it's about guilt about dad dying, but didn't tell him exactly what. And how but, come you won't tell your girlfriend? Uh, no, I just don't. Uh, no, I don't know. I, I don't know. That's just nothing. I That type of things uh, I keep to myself. So. 
so Ted, we should stop. Um, yeah, I, I hope I gave story. you what you wanted and didn't ramble. No, you totally I, did. You totally did. If anything, so. what I wish is somehow that you could find more compassion for yourself. Because you didn't know. You didn't know he was dying. You had no idea he was going to die. Yeah, I, what I, I feel sure of, what I feel sure of, is that if you had known that this was your last half hour to be with your dad... I, I'm 100% sure you wouldn't have gone home to take a shower. No. Yeah, yeah. See, uh, that's a different perspective. I hadn't heard that one. Yep. Yeah. So it's like how to have so much tenderness and mercy for that young guy who didn't know. Well, yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks, Anne. conversation was a little unusual for me in the sense that I don't do or really even want to do therapy on the radio, but I felt so moved by Ted's suffering and the way he was punishing himself, I just couldn't leave it there. I wanted to give him another way of looking at the story that held it and held him with a lot more compassion. His story really brought home for me the way that guilt can become a burden and that forgiving ourselves can be a lot more complicated when the person we've hurt is no longer alive. The next story is also from a man I've known for over 20 years and is also about the kind of guilt that comes up at the end of a parent's life. In William's story, as you'll see, he gets a lot more flack from his family for his mistake, but ultimately is able to arrive at a place of self-forgiveness. Part of what struck me as I listened to William is the way that his compassion for himself ultimately also extended to his parents as well. Here's William. My parents were wonderful, beautiful people uh, who were uh, born in 1917, 1923. Uh, my father, unfortunately, uh, was uh, diagnosed with manic depression. And uh, I don't think my mother knew that that was happening when, uh, when they got married. Um, my father was uh, the first one in Canada um, that was put on... Uh, lithium but unfortunately it didn't work and he would get very 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 high to the point of delusion and uh i think my mother dealt with that by uh by drinking hiding drinks and i suppose she was uh um, a mother of the 50s and uh and you know everything was within the house it was a lot of um upheaval um police at the house because of my uh my father raging, I suppose, my mother uh, uh, quite drunk and so on. Um, I got, uh, I inherited, I suppose, from uh, from both uh, of my parents some wonderful, wonderful things. They were very loving people, but they were challenged. Um, I ended up with my mother's alcoholism, or which turned into my alcoholism, and I ended up with my father's, I, I'm, I'm not bipolar, but I'm what you call cyclothemic, which is uh, I have a cycle in, my, in a year or in the way that my chemicals uh, go. And I was, um, um, had serious problems with depression. Um, I f 
found out myself uh, that I was an uh, alcoholic and stopped drinking when I was 32 years old. My mother stopped when she was 50 and was basically waiting for me to stop. <laughs> uh, my mother had uh, cancer when I was about um, 40 years old. I had been uh, sober at the time, and um, it, uh, it came back uh, again when she was 68 years old. The company that I was working for at the time, uh, luckily, in a sense, went bankrupt. Nothing to do with me, of course. And um, and I was able to um, uh, stay with my uh, mother and my father for uh, eight months uh, prior to her making the great transition. And um, in that time, uh, my uh, mother shared with me all of her experiences, all of her challenges, all of her pain. Um, all of her sadness, all of her own shame um, in the years that, uh, that I was uh, a child growing up, her dealing with my father's uh, bipolarity and, and, and her solution to that was, uh, was found in a bottle, unfortunately. I uh, would stay up with her till three, four o'clock in the morning and we'd talk about life and her perception of the world. And in a sense, I suppose one would want to... Uh, get those things in that perspective uh, from age zero to age 14 but unfortunately at the time and the place uh, that didn't happen for me my mother had to go into uh, palliative care on a Thursday night um, I took her there, and um, uh, I came back to uh, my parents' apartment with my father, and uh, I heard uh, a bottle of gin calling me. I, I, I relapsed. I, I uh, drank incredibly, and the following morning, I knew a week before that she was about to probably uh, pass away, which was really, really uh, hurting me. Um, and I, I suppose for one reason or other, I wasn't taking care of myself properly. I was too much with her or something like that. At any rate, uh, the, uh, the demons of, uh, and the dragons of um, alcoholic thinking, I suppose, came back. Anyway, um, that particular evening, they called us at about 4 o'clock in the morning and told us that we better come quickly. And we did. And when we got there, uh, she, was, uh, she had passed away. Um, I felt a really um, serious uh, sledgehammer of emotion and uh, and sadness and so on. Uh, my father didn't know that I had been drinking at that point because I I don't know I had learned to sort of hide that and so on. But the following morning, at ten o'clock in the morning of the day of my mother's wake, I was uh, wasted, drunk in the middle of the uh, the uh, living room. Uh, with a bottle beside me, not expecting my older sister to walk in. Uh, she did, saw the state I was in. Uh, I think I'd finished about three quarters of a bottle, and I was trying to make arrangements for people traveling in, taking care of business, if you will. My, uh, my sister looked at me and uh, um, with a look of rage, uh, with a look of terror, with, with this look of, of betrayal on her face, 
and she lost it, and I, I completely understand why my father came into the, uh, into the room. It was a disastrous, unbelievably uh, sad uh, set, uh, set of affairs that I had uh, caused that situation. Um, I staggered out of the, uh, their apartment. I uh, bounced off a number of walls. I decided to uh, stagger down to my own apartment. Um, where my younger sister was staying, showed up at the door uh, with a, a bunch of flowers that I picked out of random gardens, uh, shocked my sister, um, ended up passing out uh, underneath a, uh, a bunch of bushes and woke up at four o'clock in the afternoon with rain falling on my face. And then my mother's wake was at five phone my father I was asked uh, very kindly by him not to show up and um, and there you have it um, we had the uh, we had the funeral we had um, we had uh, family friends and so on and I was uh, <laughs> I felt awful I was uh, looked at uh, probably with a lot of pity and a lot of uh, a lot of how could he um, the, um, that obviously scarred me. I was able to, uh, stop drinking again. Um, but today I, uh, I know that she would have understood. It was just, it was a reaction to, uh, to a very great love and, a, a very great loss and not quite understanding my own particular addiction at that time. And, um, uh, I stopped drinking, um, I put my life back together. My father passed away six months later, and uh, I was able to be there for him. I was able to um, to be uh, the son that I uh, I could have been or should have been, perhaps. Uh, the idea of what do you think of a man or a son who shows up at his own mother's funeral drunk? Um, I have come to terms with that, that uh, under the set of circumstances and the way that I took uh, the way that I took care of myself or didn't take care of myself, uh, in a sense, there was no way I could not have gone, uh, gone that way. Um, uh, it was just too, too, too much uh, love, too much uh, uh, caring and too much joy in the fact that uh, that my mother and I had become incredibly good friends and uh, very close, and that she uh, was um, beautiful enough to uh, put put me to peace. All of those sort of dragons that would have followed me from my adolescence and um, allowed me to uh, become whole again. And uh, that is my story. confess when I first heard that you were going to tell me this story, William, yep. I was imagining something different. What I was imagining was that, you know, you, so you miss your mother's weight because you're drinking. That, that's the only thing I knew. And what I thought was that you missed it because at some level you were angry with her, that it was some kind of like, 
you know, showing her. And and the way you, <laughs> the way you tell the story, I don't hear that at all. But I'm curious. You know, she she was a complicated mother, right? She was drinking. She was raging. Um, was there any of that in it? I suppose there was a a ton of that in it um, uh, for for many years, and it it probably took me into my forties to figure out really <laughs> what the whole story had been. Um, and I'm sure I got uh, a lot of my drinking was drinking at my mother, <laughs> and uh, drinking at the set of circumstances, and drinking at my loneliness and and so on but in a sense alcohol for somebody like me was a solution and i i didn't view it as a problem until the walls came tumbling down if you will my the the experience of 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 being with a uh, uh somebody that's overcome their their own addiction their own demons where they have the strength and the courage to uh to uh face whatever odds they have to face and then uh, and then uh be reborn in a sense to their own uh, their own light their own uh, their own um, spirituality and uh, and so on is uh, is an incredible gift so that eight months that was a, an unbelievable blessing and in a sense to be involved in that and then to know that it's it's gonna disappear yeah. um, it's such great light and then and then she's gone Right. And, so uh, yeah. So as I heard you, I, what I understood was that right. You were you were drinking in a way to manage the pain. It, it was a solution again of sorts. Right. Yes. <laughs> and um, you said that your mom helped you connect with. She gave you the center of yourself. What do you mean by that? Um, I I believe that um, as a result of of growing up with the uh, around the afflictions of and challenges of my parents um i became um so much more oriented towards taking care of situations and so on um when i had that eight months with my mother um it was uh, a mother um and a son in the right roles that we should have been uh, my mother offering me great love, great direction, great understanding, um, in a very quiet, beautiful, uh, beautiful way. Um, uh, so, um, when we would have those late night conversations and the closeness and the, uh, and the love that I felt, and I'm sure that she felt, uh, back, um, the child in me was healing. Uh, the uh, the scared uh, little boy who was sort of forced into um, into manning up, if you will, and taking care of my father and my mother at the time uh, um, was being soothed, was being explained uh, to, was being uh, told why, uh, what what the ways of the world were, and so on, and allowing me to uh, forgive. It's wonderful. I wish that yeah. everyone, I wish everyone could have that. You know, we all have these unexplained things from our childhood. It sounds like you really were able to make peace with that. I I I, I really was, and that and and I uh, <laughs> with other challenges uh, uh, not mentioned and so on. It I've always been able to come back to uh, um, to that center 
to that uh, place of peace, of uh, unconditional understanding and, uh, and, uh, and love. And I, I really believe that's what it's all about. I'm right with you there, William. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm sure you noticed the difference in tone between our two storytellers today, between how much Ted continues to suffer with guilt and William's shift into self-forgiveness. I think the contrast highlights how important the power of compassion is and how hard it is to arrive at, especially if we don't have people we can talk to. Next week, we'll be hearing two more stories about guilt. They kept pouring in. We'll be talking about two of the hardest kinds of guilt to confess, childhood bullying and cheating on your partner, the types of things that nobody wants to admit to, and therefore the reasons behind them go unacknowledged and stay misunderstood. If you like the show and want to hear more of our series on the emotions that we hide, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com and listen to any of our past shows, including the shows on loneliness and guilt that are part of this series. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely. Speak Freely.